Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. Today is Thursday, April the 8th, and joining me on this Thursday is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, happy to to be here and happy to have uh, seen Sunny Die come and go. It's, it's good to get, uh, theoretically, a little bit of a break from the nonstop pace of Georgia politics, but as, you know, we wouldn't be here if there weren't things to talk about, so we still have things to talk about, despite, you know, the calendar saying we shouldn't. Well, we did. It is our annual session recap. Normally, this is organized in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I think today we're going to just spend most of the time on the ugly, which was the passage of the voting restriction bill, Senate Bill 202. Um, I know we have beat this bill like a dead horse over this session, um, but this, I think, is the most significant story in Georgia politics. Um, and it was really interesting to watch this bill from its original incarnations and, and our thoughts on where the bill might go and how it illustrated different divisions within the Republican Party and ultimately the landing place that we got to with the passage of Senate Bill 202 that was quickly signed into law by Governor Kemp a little earlier than I thought, Luke. It was signed into law, not on signy die, not at the very last minute or not after legislative session. It was signed before everything was done. Um, so today we are going to spend most of our time looking at that bill. We'll do a quick grab bag of the other takeaways from legislative session. Now, I know we haven't spent a lot of time on the other issues during session, um, so we are going to take some time to go back and, and take a look at those in future episodes, um, but we're going to just do a quick overview of some of the other stories that happened during session, and then we'll close with a quick discussion on early campaign announcements. Statewide candidates for 2022, Luke, they're already getting out there, putting their names in the hat uh, to run for office. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, I, I'm... I'm not surprised. Uh, I, I'm I'm not sure if I'm surprised that more haven't done it already, or that uh, you know by the people who that have done it. But we'll we'll talk about it later. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get your thoughts on that. Um, but let's start here with Senate Bill 202. Um, so you know, Luke, as we've talked about throughout this entire session, there was a major effort by Republicans across the various groups of the Republican Party in pursuing an effort to make it harder for Georgians to vote following an election that they claim without evidence was rigged, uh, that should have gone Donald Trump's way, um, and that brought a parade of conspiracy theorists to the Georgia legislature, including Rudy Giuliani, um, to those Senate hearings that, that kicked off session. And, and one of the questions that we asked was, you've got a lot of this energy, this pent-up demand from the grassroots far-right conservative wing of both the House and the Senate, and how is leadership in the House and the Senate and the governor going to hold back this energy, or in what way would they channel this energy into some final product that undoubtedly from the beginning was at least in some way going to make it more difficult to vote? Um, the place that we landed was maybe not as dire as we would have thought early in session, Um proposals that would have eliminated no excuse absentee balloting or eliminate the Sunday souls to the polls events by eliminating early voting on Sunday. Those did not make the final package, but there were some concerning provisions that made the final bill, including 
shorter absentee ballot request times and absentee ballot voter ID requirements, limits on the number and availability of drop boxes that were super helpful in helping people return their ballots during the COVID-19 pandemic. Lawmakers also criminalized having third-party groups distribute food and water to voters waiting in line. There are prohibitions on counties getting outside election assistance funding. And a lot of the uh the authorities on election administration have been centralized in the hands of a legislatively appointed state elections board that now basically strips the secretary of state from power over that board and gives that legislatively appointed board the opportunity to take authority away from county elections officials. Um, Despite that, one of the talking points that you're hearing from Republicans about the bill is that it actually expands access to voting. There's one limited provision that does that for some group of voters by requiring an additional Saturday of early voting, though that is not the widespread expansion of voting access that it is being pitched as. Um, What do you make of the place where we landed in this final bill? I think the Republicans are trying to do the best they can with a bad hand they dealt themselves uh, because it was, you know, their own choice to deal themselves this hand. And the hand they got dealt was they they felt like they were in a position where they could not reject Donald Trump's assertion that the election in Georgia was stolen, despite doing that multiple times and quartering on TV, saying that there were no voter integrity problems in the state of Georgia and there was no voter fraud in the state of Georgia. They still felt like they had to pass a bill that made voting harder in uh, the state, and that is what this bill does, uh, despite the minor uh, increases in opportunities to vote on weekends in rural Republican counties. So generous. It, yeah. Overall, it, it is a bill that makes it harder for everyone in the state of Georgia to vote. And the the reason I think this bill looks the way it does, and it's not the very hardcore, everything thrown against the wall voter suppression bill, uh, is is because they realize that this is political death for them, I think. Uh, but And they're trying to make the best of it by throwing in one provision that theoretically expands the vote for some people while severely restricting the vote for uh, most other Georgians. And I, I think, I think it, it's the fact that this is, as, um, <laughs> as our soon-to-be former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan uh, you know, has said, that this is a bill that is a solution in search for a problem because they all know that this is a problem that doesn't exist. And so they had to create a bill that would theoretically solve a fake problem, right? Um, the, the thing that's most noticeable to me is the parts of this bill that get the, the least attention, I think, on the news because – Rightfully so, the you know provision that doesn't let you give people water and food in, in a line is just egregious and obviously trying to make it harder to vote. I mean, there's no—I don't know how it hurts the integrity of someone's ballot if someone gives them a bottle of water in a line. But what does hurt the integrity of someone's vote is if the very partisan Georgia legislature is able to— uh, come into counties and disrupt local control and remove the election board there and you know decide to not certify an election because they don't like the results of it. I think that is what is more concerning to voter integrity than any of the uh, fake things that Donald Trump and his allies in the state have talked about. To parse a couple of those provisions, it is possible that 
just a few lawmakers from a delegation from a county could actually begin the process that would lead the state election board to to take over the responsibilities of local elections officials and place those in the hands of the state election board or someone that they appoint to run elections in that county. They can only do this for a few counties at a time, but it is one of the most alarming provisions, particularly because it's not entirely clear what guardrails there are on what a state takeover of a local election board looks like and how that would change how the rules and procedures for voting that are set up at a local level, how those are applied during an election. Um, so that is one worth keeping an eye on. The other one, just as a, a quick like point of concern that I've seen, particularly in Governor Kemp's media appearances where he is defending this bill, um, he has said repeatedly that it is possible for someone to order food and sort of bypass this requirement that uh, people not be handed food or water while they're waiting in an election line. Um, it's not actually entirely clear that you could like order Uber Eats and have it delivered to you. When you read the statute, you can't actually see that that is somehow carved out. Well, um, I, I would just pause there, man. It's just like, why is this a provision? Why is this a provision at all? It is, yeah. it, you know, because uh, the, you know, my understanding, of it, I'm not a lawyer yet, but my understanding uh, is that you can't give anyone food 150 feet from a polling place and or 25 feet within where people are standing in line. So like a line that goes for several blocks out, you know, you could be quarter mile away and the provision still applies. And the only people that appear carved out in the, particularly in the statute are the precinct officials running the precinct and Uber eats guys not running the precinct. And also now, because of another provision of this law, you could not theoretically give money or food to those local county election boards to supply them with food to give to people in long lines. And so the, 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 the point is, even if there's a loophole, let's say Kemp's right, and that's a loophole that exists. Why is that a law to begin with? Why is it a problem if a random person or someone working with a campaign gives someone water or food in a long line it do, it doesn't do anything except reflect the fact that this law is aiming at making voting harder because one of the commonly cited reasons for why people do not vote is the lines are too long and obviously <laughs> having a snack or food or water would make the line even if long a little bit more bearable and you'd be more likely to stay in a long line and so you know to me it's just it's so blatant um, but I think that's probably the point because they want you to ignore these other provisions we're talking about and focus all of our ire on um, the most egregious one. Yeah, and I actually want to back this conversation out into intent a little bit here because very quickly this conversation kind of devolved into, well, this is a provision that would make it easier to vote. This is a provision that would make it harder to vote. Can we do some sort of balancing between these provisions to try to decide like what the net impact would be and basically determine whether or not some of the criticisms from Democrats of this law are overblown because maybe this won't have a big effect. But to me that there is a concerning step that you're taking there in, in overlooking the intent of what this entire effort to make it more difficult to vote was about. So beyond specific provisions of the law, this 
legislative session started with one lawmaker saying that absentee ballots were the shady side of town you didn't want to spend too much time in. The entire state Senate caucus backed the elimination of no-excuse absentee balloting. And we had this parade of hearings that I mentioned in the intro, one of which featured really one of which featured Rudy Giuliani, where he and other people just brought a massive blatant misinformation about the conduct of the 2020 election. And Lieutenant Governor Duncan, who we're going to talk about not running for re-election, one of the things that he has cited in his criticism of this effort broadly is that it was this focus on all of the misinformation that animated this push and ultimately got these bills across the finish line. What do you make of the intent of a large number of Republican lawmakers who stoked this fight? I I think the intent is very simple. It's what I I said at the top, I think, which is they're they're just feeding off the energy of Donald Trump's big lie that there was any there was voter fraud on a scale large enough in the state of Georgia to flip the result. And it's frustrating that we got to this point because we started in the right place. We started in a place where, you know, both Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensberger were being quite unambiguous in saying that the election in Georgia was not stolen. And they've just completely burned any of the credibility they had on this issue by pursuing this bill in any fashion because of the fact that they pursued it in a way that made it it was clear that their intent was to make it harder to vote. Because if you spend a couple months saying the election was fine in Georgia, our security was great, this was the most secure election in Georgia's history, and you followed up with a bill allegedly trying to fix all of these voter integrity problems you have, well, you just spent months saying you didn't have any of those problems. And so the intent is very clear. It is they are trying to hold on to power because this is a bill that did does make it more difficult to vote and does make more administrative burdens, not less. And it's not like this is some cosmic force of nature, that this is the only direction bills can go in in your voting systems, because in Kentucky, you know, the governor just signed a bipartisan bill that makes it easier to vote. So it's it, you don't have to always make it harder to vote. You can make it easier to vote, and it can get bipartisan support like it did in Kentucky. Um, but... That's not the choice they made, and, and I think the thing that I really take away from this, and by the fact we're having to have this episode, which is probably our sixth or seventh, where we've talked about this bill or some version of this bill at length, is that they chose this issue at the cost of every other big issue the state faces because, you know, voter integrity is not the number one issue in the state of Georgia. If you were at the state capitol this session or listened to anything that anyone said, you would think it was uh, because all of the political energy, all of the political capital of the leaders of our state was spent on this fake issue. It's cost us a lot of time and effort doing this instead of all the other things we should have been doing. And to me, that is the in- that is the real cost of this legislation, not just the legislation itself, but the continued exacerbation of the big lie and the cost of not doing other things the state should be focused on. The choice to focus on this issue also, I think, illustrates the direction that leading figures in the Republican Party believe that the party needs to go in to retain support among its base, or at least for these individual officials to avoid 
losing primary challenges from people who are carrying the Trump mantle and carrying on his parade of misinformation about the 2020 election. Um, And so I was struck a little bit by the language that Kemp used to defend this law and to criticize Major League Baseball for moving the All-Star game from Atlanta to Colorado in response to this law. Let's listen to Governor Kemp at a what was an unusual Saturday press conference um, describing his reaction to this move by Major League Baseball. Yesterday, Major League Baseball caved to fear and lies from liberal activists. They ignored the facts of our new election integrity law, and they ignored the consequences of their decision on our local community. Georgians and all Americans should know what this decision means. It means cancel culture and partisan activists are coming for your business. They're coming for your game or event in your hometown. And they're coming to cancel everything from sports to how you make a living. They don't care about jobs. They don't care about our communities and they certainly don't care about access to the ballot box. It's easier to vote in Georgia than it is in New York. Even more ridiculous is that MLB didn't cite a single reason that they disagreed with the bill in their statement. Luke, I was unaware that Kelly Leffler got a job on Governor Kemp's communications staff. Yeah, I, I may, it's, it's news to me, but it does seem like he is adopting the ineffective campaigning style that our former senator adopted, and it is uh, disappointing because, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, Kemp and Raffensperger really set up the groundwork for what they could do. <laughs> I feel like I'm singing Jeff Duncan's praises a lot today. <laughs> Maybe it's in, in memorandum, in a memorial for memorial. his political career, but, uh, it, you know, it's... It, he does this so well, actually. I, I will give him credit because I, I meant to talk about this when I saw him on Meet the Press a couple weeks ago because I am one of those people that watch those shows. But, like, he just has been very clear on what he calls GOP 2.0 and his just belief that the party can do better. And, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I've seen the Republican Party do better in this state than they're doing right now and focusing on actual issues. And, sure, they pursue them in ways I don't believe in and they have adopted policies I don't like, but they at least – dig it for the right reasons in their hearts and they had you know numbers to back them up and they uh were were focused on things that actually were happening in the state because the thing that's so mind-boggling for me and that disheartens me so much when i listen to kemp talk this way because i've seen him not talk this way so he's choosing to talk this way is that it's just a lie building upon a lie because the Stacey Abrams was not out here calling for the MLB to to leave. Now, I know some other Democrats, including the president, were, but, you know, that that was not what she was trying to do. That's not what Democratic activists on the ground are doing. Like, I'm not doing that. No, my friends are calling for that. Like, what people care about are the issues in this state. The Democrats care about the issues, and they're fighting over the issues, and they're fighting over access to the ballot. And, like, no one's coming to cancel your Little League game. We don't have that kind of power. We don't have that. We don't want to do it. <laughs> Even if we could, we wouldn't cancel your little league game. And so it's just like, I don't see, I don't see what he thinks talking this way and doing just blatant fear mongering like this, like what it accomplishes. And I think it just, to me, it's sad because it just, it shows how hollow this entire conversation is on their side because 
they just don't have any legs to stand on. And so they, you know, they say they, they go with one lie and it's like, well, I did that lie. It was pretty easy. I guess I'll lie again and you lie again and you lie again. Now you're just in a bizarro world where, you know, Democrats are these all powerful, you know, council where we decide what businesses exist and which don't and which games happen and which don't. And the, the last thing I'll say on this is this, this comes back to the intent thing, which is it does not really matter if you pass a law that isn't the most harsh voter suppression law in the history of the world, if your intent was to make it for people, especially minority people, to make it harder for them to vote, that intent alone is enough for condemnation from businesses, from individuals, from, you know, frankly, any institution that feels like that's a bad thing, which most do these days. And I, I think Kemp's missing the point here that he has failed to convince people that this is being done for the right legitimate reasons that he is trying to argue that they are being done for. And that is a failure of his leadership. And so, frankly, like whining about there being consequences for him failing to pursue legislation that people think will make the state better is not going to help the situation. Um, and if anything, he should be moving on from this issue uh, because he's already done enough damage. And I, I, I'm just, I'm sad to seeing him him double down on it because I, I this state's Republican Party has proven itself susceptible to lashing out at the business community or anyone that uh, criticizes them. I'm also confused about the strategy behind doubling down on this issue, particularly the issue of voting, because with the exception of the provision in this law that adds absentee ballot voter ID requirements, which did poll well in the AJC poll, other restrictions like restrictions on ballot boxes or other provisions that would make it harder to vote, those did not poll well. And this has obviously brought a lot of negative press to the governor, but he's also centered his response like in conservative media to defend this law and to attack Democrats over this law and put a lot of focus on an issue that also Stacey Abrams has organized her politics around for the last decade or so. And Stacey Abrams is very likely to be Brian Kemp's opponent in 2022. And he seems to be on the wrong side of public opinion on an issue that he is putting at the center of his political identity that his future opponent has been a longtime advocate on behalf of like just the issue choice there that doesn't seem to be a good one for him is confusing to me about why this is a fight that he wants when, you know, we haven't talked a lot about some of these other things that happened in legislative session, but they did uh, get rid of, for the most part, get rid of the citizens arrest statute. They did pass a law that increases adoption tax credits, which is an issue that has a broader level of support and one that is more unifying for Republicans. They did pass a law that provides paid leave to state employees. These are not blockbuster provisions, but these very often animate the kind of vision of the Republican Party that you hear from David Ralston, one that we come back to very often. But putting all of the focus on the voting issue sucks all of the oxygen out of the room for the other issues, all at the service of trying to defeat a primary challenger coming his way, um, in a way that I think, you know, for every 
for every bit that his chances improve in winning the primary, it seems that they probably also decrease in winning the general election if he ends up being the Republican nominee. Um, Luke, we often come back to this David Ralston, Nathan Deal vision of the Republican Party. Possibly the bravest practitioner of that provision, which we haven't talked a lot about, is actually Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. And I I would characterize him as the bravest because when you hear David Ralston, he tries to sort of change the subject, but he very rarely is sort of directly confrontational to Donald Trump or calls the party to move on from Donald Trump. And actually, Jeff Duncan has organized much of his politics around this GOP 2.0 idea, moving on from Donald Trump and taking on a different set of issues. But as the AJC reported this on Thursday morning, the day that we're recording, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, who just won election to this seat in 2018 after it was held for a long time by Casey Cagle, he is unlikely to run for re-election in 2022 and instead seems to want to invest his time in this GOP 2.0 project that looks to build some sort of Republican Party that has moved on from Trump and um, moved on from all the election conspiracy theories that he animated. But he was kind of, he and he and Brad Raffensperger, who may lose a primary, are kind of the last ones practicing that politics. And it's possible that both of them are gone after the next election. Um, and all incentives seem to point towards a party following Kemp's lead and doubling down on Trump's racial grievance politics. What do you think of that development? I, I think it's a real shame because, as I, I mentioned earlier, the... Country benefits for you know having two parties that are equally valid and equally in it for the right reasons, and you know again uh, I don't agree with Jeff Duncan on a lot of stuff, uh, but I have always considered him to be someone who was in politics for the right reasons, was you know pursuing issues he cared about, and did it in a intelligent, focused way. And I, I've always been impressed with him, and you know in the way that. Uh, you know, you can just respect public figures who are pursuing things based on their beliefs rather than conspiracy theories or lies or just pure political hackishness. And I, I think I think it's a very similar dynamic to what we're seeing on the federal level with a lot of old-time politicians leaving the Senate. And I think he just probably doesn't think he can get very much done in the current state of the Republican Party, and I, I don't blame him for that, um, because I, I mean, I, I was very surprised too, you know, how harsh he was against Trump and the party uh, when I saw him the you know, past couple times when I've seen him on TV talking about these issues, and he, I mean, he's he's taking a lot of flack for it from his party because of that, and um, you know, there's always more he could have done and should have done, but uh, on the whole, I think he's been a positive force for the party uh, where, where they've been recently. And I think it's a bad sign that he he's getting out because I, I suspect he probably is facing a lot of the same pressures that Kemp is, and he's made a decision that I think is better uh, you know, in the long run uh, of refusing to compromise his beliefs and sink to a level where he's saying things he doesn't believe and i think he feels like if he does that he he can't win a primary in this state and i think that's a real shame if that's true um so we'll, we'll see if uh he 
you know, continues on that path. And if he actually doesn't run again, and I'll be curious to see what he does uh, after that. I mean, based off that statement, it does, that really does not sound like a I'm running for Senate in 22 <laughs> uh, statement. I mean, it could, it could turn into that. Maybe he feels like that's a better platform for him to try to pitch a new Republican Party. But um, I, I really, I'm really just surprised by it, honestly, because as I think we've talked about here before, but I definitely talk about with a lot of my political hack friends like Duncan was the person kind of universally on the Republican side that we thought was the smartest and had a lot of potential to be a governor after Kemp and um, part of me wonders if that is his uh, political instincts paying off again and him kind of doing like Paul Ryan did and saw the writing on the wall and knew the next couple of years were going to be kind of nasty and dirty and just wanted to get out <laughs> as quickly as he possibly could, which uh, I, I think he's right. And that's a smart move uh, if that's the way he's thinking, but it, it's one of those things you never really know why pe- people drop out of these things when they do and what, what they're up to. So I, I will be very, very curious uh, to see how this plays out with him. But I think in, in that, I think it's a, probably a bad thing for the state just because uh, it has really, I, I've been surprised just how big of a difference it's made in the, the personnel changes in the legislature, in the governor's mansion since the deal years. And uh, it's unfortunately not been for the better recently. Yeah, I think given everything we've talked about, I mean, I put this segment on Duncan within the voting rights segment because it was notable that Duncan, when the when Senate Bill 202 was being debated on the Senate floor, Duncan refused to preside over the Senate because he opposed the bill. But it really, you know, he, as a constitutional matter, he does preside over the Senate. But as a political matter, it doesn't really matter what Jeff Duncan thinks to the Senate if the Senate Republican caucus thinks something else. And it was notable before session that Duncan was already sort of throwing up red flags about this kind of effort. And the Senate Republican caucus itself which I believe Duncan does not chair or lead or anything like that. Um, the the, the, the itself, lieutenant governor is is very a very bizarre position <laughs> in the state yeah. of Georgia, and its powers fluctuate wildly since the uh, Senate Republican caucus have a, a lot more power than they probably should to change the job description uh, of that position. But the you know the alleged Republican leader in the Senate uh, is opposing a bill that then the rest of the Senate caucus came out or was opposing a bunch of uh, restriction provisions that then the Senate caucus came out in support of in a newsletter before session. Um, Just an illustration of him not seeing the Lieutenant governor position as a opportunity for him to further his political brand and probably work with anybody who agrees with him. Um, But the other thing that's notable too, about the, the Paul Ryan comparison, Luke is Paul Ryan was also a, a, a very smart, very talented, young, up-and-coming Republican moved up to the Speaker of the House position, saw the writing on the wall, and left. And as far as I understand, basically has no plans to come back. So if you're wondering if Jeff Duncan's going to come back, Paul Ryan's evidence that Jeff Duncan might be uh, – maybe he'll see if his fastball is what it used to be and see if he can play baseball again. Let's move on here to the Democrats. Um it's been notable to watch Republicans actually are fairly united around the response to major league baseball's decision to move the all-star game 
to Colorado and the criticism of the law from major Georgia companies like Delta and Coca-Cola. Um, it's kind of been a uniting force for them. For Democrats, there seems to be a variety of opinions about how much pressure to put on the state's business community and how to react to boycotts that potentially have negative impacts on workers and people who would benefit from the business that would otherwise be done. And Stacey Abrams is very interesting in this regard. Um, She has actually opposed boycotting, at least for now, and signaled before MLB moved the game that she opposed moving the All-Star game out of Georgia. Let's play a clip uh, from an interview Stacey Abrams gave to the Associated Press where she described her philosophy around boycotts. What I have said is this. I do. I understand boycotts. I support the notion of boycotts as a macro good. I grew up in the Deep South. Boycotts are the reason that I have the ability to make this argument as a free citizen. And so, yes, I understand the impulse of boycotting. But I also understand that boycotts operate differently depending on your targets and depending on your timeline. I do not believe that a boycott at this moment is beneficial to the victims of these bills. I have said that before and I've said it again, but I do believe it is absolutely necessary for corporations to show their goodwill if they want voters, if they want their employees, their consumers and their shareholders to trust their values. And that is that they have to publicly denounce these bills. They have to support and invest in voting rights expansion, and they need to support the federal voting rights standards that are embedded in H.R. 1, S. 1 and H.R. 4. Luke, what do you make of Abrams' position on boycotts there and sort of transitioning this away from what a boycott would do to the actions that corporations and other powerful entities could take to um, signal their support for voting rights? I I find it hard to disagree (laughs) or even say anything because I feel like she said it very well with both the nuance of like why boycotts are important and uh, understanding why people lean towards that as a solution to these problems. But I I agree with her that I I don't see that as a real long-term solution to our current situation. I think pressuring businesses is very important um, and trying to get everyone to stand up for democracy, uh, even if it's smaller incursions on you know the right to vote and the access to the ballot. So despite Abrams' view on boycotts, which I actually don't think is all that new, I think I've heard her describe boycotts this way before. There was, I think, some consideration of um, boycotting or businesses leaving the state following the heartbeat abortion ban uh, that was signed by Governor Kemp earlier in his administration. Gosh, that seems like 10 years ago now. Um, Despite her view on that, Republicans have tried to place the blame for the all-star game leaving Georgia on Stacey Abrams' shoulders, on Joe Biden's shoulders, and on what Republicans say is a misinformation campaign about their voter integrity bill um, that I guess they argue uh, some politicians hoodwink some companies and and now there's all these threats that, that companies might leave and, and they're playing the all-star game in Denver. There is some element, I mean, the argument to me is bullshit, but there is some element of it that gives me a little bit of heartburn in that a lot of people who are not closely following this issue, who may just see headlines in the paper are probably going to see the all-star game leaving the state and have some kind of negative feeling about it, even if they're not big baseball fans. 
And so this question of who's really to blame for this, you know, I think is an interesting one, um, given that if Republican arguments to the public broadly were successful on placing the blame on the shoulders of Abrams and Democrats, that they could pay a political price for that. Um, in addition to the price that workers pay when, when you have business leave the state, do you have any heartburn over sort of the politics of this? Not, not really. And the reason why is it goes back to what I was saying earlier is the argument that the Republicans are trying to make here only really works if people believe them on the necessity of the voter suppression bills. Because if you're someone who does not think that Donald Trump actually won the stake of Georgia and there was some giant voter fraud that flipped the election in his favor, then you probably don't like that bill and you probably blame Kemp for, for signing it because it was his choice to do that. He could have vetoed it. Their legislature could have spent its time on any other issue. And I mean, just frankly, I, I think this argument comes down to, you know, pull some person off the street, ask them, do you think it should be illegal for someone to hand someone a bottle of water in a line when they are trying to vote? And most Georgians will say, no, I don't think that should be illegal. And I think most Georgians understand that that is something this bill does. And they understand that the boycotts that have happened are a result of that bill. And since you don't agree with that and you think that's egregious, then you're going to blame Kemp. You're not going to blame Abrams or anyone else, especially when Abrams is out there saying the things she's saying and saying that she doesn't want boycotts and she thinks they're counterproductive right now. And I think their messaging strategy misses this because, and, and this is, I think, the the real tragedy of the state's current governance right now is that it just feels like they are in a bubble where everyone they talk to agrees to them because we, I mean, we talked about this for months with Loeffler especially, that her messaging just did not seem to connect with the reality of what was happening in the state and what people on the ground in Georgia thought. And Kemp has seemed to adopt that same headspace in a way that I think is really unfortunate because he's shown himself to not always be in that headspace and be able to think outside of it. And I really wish that he would re return to that kind of politics where we could not have such cantankerous sessions and not cantankerous political issues all the time because he's just for whatever reason decided to adopt the most divisive unpopular issues in the state and just like pick those as his number one things to do each session and I, i'm i'm not looking forward to next session because of that the other trend that i'm kind of interested in and this gets back a little bit i think to stacy abrams view of a boycott is corporations do not want to be in the crosshairs of either party um, on issues like these. I mean, you know, Coca-Cola, they they may have made ads about equity during um, the racial justice protests of last summer, and they probably do have a lot of staff, and, and as a brand, they probably do care about those issues broadly, but when it comes to politics and when it comes to governing, they don't really, you know, wrap their politics around these issues. They care substantively about tax policy and business regulatory policy and the things that impact the ways that they can grow their business and, and pursue new markets and make new products, things like that. And Republicans at this point seem fully wedded to burning bridges with business 
if it means that they protect themselves from a primary challenge from a Trumpy Republican. And I do think that there's an interesting opportunity for Democrats here to present themselves as the business-friendly, responsible governing party. Um, and at the end of the day, this position, this this sort of shifting the discussion from boycotts to the real issue here is voting access. And if you want to, if you want to show that you support democracy and all the people demonstrating in the streets for the right to vote, the way to do that is to just literally support the organizations that make that happen and to oppose the laws that make that more difficult. And that really doesn't pull you away from your core business interests. And it doesn't, for the most part, result in Democrats having their crosshairs trained on these corporations. Like these corporations can step up and then there can be separate discussions about the issues that are more central to businesses, policy and substantive concerns. And that to me, you know, raises this question of what political giving from corporations is going to look like in the next election cycle and the next few cycles in Georgia. Because if businesses read some of the writing on the wall, there is evidence that Democrats can win statewide now. Three of them did it in the last five months. Corporations might be looking to the possibility that Democrats could win some other statewide offices and take policymaking power in this state and want to build governing working relationships with Democrats. And this positioning from Abram seems to welcome a more productive relationship than one that is going to push your political base at these groups every time they have a policy disagreement with you. Um, and so I think that's, you know, a potentially an interesting opportunity. I think for some progressives, that's, that may be uncomfortable politics. Um, but across Republicans and Democrats going back for the last 30 years or so, big business has had a hand in our state's politics and in a lot of ways has pushed the state from a social justice perspective in the right direction. Um, and so it'll just be interesting to watch that trend develop, particularly if Democrats continue to win statewide elections, businesses are not going to just stop caring about what goes on in Atlanta. Yeah. I, I surely hope that, you know, big businesses start to see what is the truth, which is that the Republicans are not reliable partners for them anymore. And even though progressives and rank-and-file Democrats have lots of disagreements with the big companies in Georgia and the way that they operate. Those don't have to be no-holds-barred fights. You know, they, they can be civil discussions where we figure out what is a proper compromise. You know, what is the way that we balance all of the interests in this state in a reasonable way based on data, based on what's actually happening and not fantasies or responding to political machinations and you know it's just not a way to run a state it's not it's not a good way for republicans to do it it's not good when democrats do it and businesses should not have the government wait on them and you know do everything they want them to do but it is valuable when there's a productive relationship and government is there to hold businesses to account and provide oversight and make sure that workers are being treated the way they deserve uh but you know there's there's also ways to cooperate and at least in my opinion the laissez-faire republican 
approach to business regulation and taxes is not worth the political retribution banana republic they would like to create not just this session but they've done this before and so i i think that is something i hope businesses both big and small in the state of georgia start to think about because um this is this is only going in a bad direction donald trump is a pure example of how bad this can get and i I hope that georgia does not go in that direction any further than it already has so for now we're going to leave our discussion of the voting restrictions there um undoubtedly we will come back to this issue. There are already lawsuits being filed in court to challenge this issue, to challenge this law. Um, so we will cover those as those move forward. And then if if we get insight into how these laws are actually impacting people's access to the ballot, or as we learn about the ways in which Republicans think they may use the power to take over local election boards, um, we'll certainly be back to talk about that. And then as a, a preview, you know, this whole issue is an interesting preview of another coming attraction later this year, and that is redistricting, uh, because the census was done last year. Um, It appears that the legislature will meet in special sessions sometime in the late summer or early fall to do redistricting. This entire thing, this entire last session seemed to be a conversation about maximizing partisan advantage. And the one sort of strategic objective that you can pursue without really being hindered by the courts is drawing lines to maximize partisan advantage. Um, we'll see if they have the opportunity to do that or if laws change in Washington that uh, forces Georgia's hand to take another approach to redistricting. Um, but we're going to be back to talk about all of that. Real quick before we go today, let's wrap up what happened in session and talk a little bit about announced campaigns uh, for the 2022 cycle. Really quick on session, we haven't covered a lot of these issues very in depth, um, but just to go over a few of them, and then we're going to return to these in future episodes. On the final day of session, lawmakers did pass a budget that continues to underfund some key priorities. The budget did increase funding for mental health care, increase some funding for schools, and restore some of the spending cuts to important programs that the state has put into place over the last couple of years. But it also continues to underfund our education funding formula by another $400 million for fiscal year 2022, despite the fact that we have a healthy rainy day fund, despite the fact that a lot of funding is coming in from Washington, the state still not meeting its commitment on education funding. Lawmakers also did approve a measure that would reform the state citizen's arrest statute. This was the statute that was initially used by a prosecutor to justify not arresting the men who murdered Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia last year. Um, that law significantly changed. It's not completely wiped off the books. There are situations like when somebody shoplifts that a business owner retains the right to detain somebody on their property. But certainly the the wide authority that that statute previously gave a it was a civil war era statute um, I think grounded in in pursuing escaped slaves that is mostly off the books one of the kind of under the radar fights that happened during session was a bill that would have required hospitals and long-term care facilities like nursing homes to allow visitors even during a pandemic that bill ultimately failed but there was a lot of partisan back and forth about this bill Um, I had a hard time developing strong feelings about this bill. I think you obviously understand during a pandemic, people concerned about their loved ones that are in the hospital or in a nursing home and whether or not they're being taken care of 
the long-term care facilities represented such a large proportion of COVID-19 deaths. So there's obviously a lot of legitimate concern here. Um, but a, a government mandate instead of like more transparent policies from healthcare providers, you know, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. That bill ultimately failed. We'll see if that discussion comes back. But that was a kind of an under the radar fight that we didn't really talk about. A couple last issues here. They did pass the bill we talked about earlier in session that takes away the right of local governments to set their own public safety budgets lower than what was currently allotted. Um, they did also pass paid leave for 250,000 state employees. And there was a really a whole series of education measures that we can talk about, but one of which expanded a school voucher program that would somewhat confusingly require students who take advantage of the voucher by going to a private school, these students who are enrolled in what is a known as a 504 plan for students with disabilities, that by taking this voucher program, they'd be required to give up some of their civil rights protections enshrined in federal law. Um, you know, an odd expansion of, of, of vouchers in Georgia. A whole bunch of issues that ultimately didn't make it across the finish line. So just as a reminder, as we put a bow on session coverage here, in as much as any bill is ever dead in the legislature, proposals that did not pass may be taken up again next year, as we are at the halfway point of a two-year session. Luke, any, any uh, final words on those bills before we wrap up with campaign announcements? As usual, it's a mixed bag of what happens in session. Uh, I, I, It's a shame that the voter suppression law took up so much of our uh, time and attention of both us and basically all, all the media and activists in Georgia because uh, it would have been interesting to explore uh, some of these bills more and I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to them uh, in the theoretical downtime that we'll have between now and uh, a little later in the year. So uh, all, all in all, I'm happy to see some of those things done. The you know paid family leave for Georgia employees is, is good and ha- happy that exists, but um, and happy that we have done something to our citizens arrest statute. There's definitely more we can do to old laws like that. Uh, and it would be great if we stopped making new ones like SB 202. Let's close here with campaign announcements. We have candidates, Luke, uh, Eric Allen. He's going to run for Lieutenant governor. He is going to have the, uh, opportunity now to run against a non-incumbent Republican, most likely with Duncan not running for reelection. There's two Democratic candidates for the Labor Commissioner, State Representative William Bodie, and State Senator Lester Jackson. Uh, Republican State Senator Bruce Thompson has also said that he is likely to challenge the sitting Republican Labor Commissioner um, after making some some noise about labor issues during legislative session. And we also talked about the two. Uh, Republicans who've are, who have already thrown their hat into primary challenge, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Congressman Jody Heiss, and uh, former failed Secretary of State candidate David Bell Isle. Luke, a lot of early announcements. What do you think about these uh, campaign timelines and everybody uh, firing up the campaign engines uh, ready for 2022? It feels very early. And maybe maybe I'll be uh, proven wrong, but I, I really thought a lot of people would follow abrams's timeline and do a early summer announcement you know so like june july august area um i I, i'm a little disheartened 
because while I, I do appreciate having more people run, because I think contested primaries ultimately help uh, Democrats, it gets more attention, it gets more money, and it get, helps people understand what these offices actually are, and I, I think that's good. Um, I, I, I just want these candidates that are running to run serious, good campaigns. I'm not saying that they aren't, but... You know, Stacey Evans did not do well running for governor, and basically everything that could go wrong in a race for her went wrong, except her announcement video was really good. <laughs> and, I mean, I still, like, you know, think about that and think of how effective it was in introducing these candidates. And so, and maybe this is just me being a political hack, expecting too much and, you know, focusing on things that don't matter, but, like, I do really like it when the announcement of someone running for office, like, can be something I get excited about. And even if it's someone who I didn't think would win, even if it's someone who I didn't think would, you know, be my first choice for an office, like just seeing that they put thought into their story and their message and they have an announcement video that they're, you know, talking about why they're running, why they think it's important and what they want to do for the state, I think is a better way to kick that off than telling Greg Bluesting <laughs> and writing an article about it. Because uh, it just seems, I don't know, like it just seems so like casual. It's like, yeah, I guess I'm running for lieutenant governor and here, you know, here's why. Because again, because like I, I read both Bogey and um, Eric Allen's announcements and they, they talked about the right things and I'm sure that they will run, you know, good, interesting races. It's just, I think it does help to professionalize the operation and just show that you're serious about, you know, doing what it takes to get uh, over the finish line because as exciting and hope-filling it is for me that we do have two Democratic senators, uh, it, it was not easy to elect them, and it won't be easy to uh, elect any other Democratic statewide in 2022. And so I, I'm hoping that this is just um, early days and it takes, you know, it takes time to build up these operations. And so I, I'm definitely being overly critical even by my own <laughs> analysis but i i do hope that going forward you know we'll see more of uh you know that 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 organizing and building up of a, a real campaign structure because i think not only is it necessary for winning but i think it's uh better for everyone if there's a real discussion on why these races matter and what they are hoping to do in these positions because you know, frankly, Stacey Abrams has not said she's running for governor, but she probably is, and Warnock's running for re-election, and those two are going to be supernovas that are just going to eat up a lot of attention, and their races are going to eat up a lot of attention because we don't know who the Republican nominee will be. We don't even know every Republican who's even thinking about running for that race, and I think the Secretary of State race would be very similar to those two just because of who Jogi Heiss is and what he represents compared to uh, Raffensperger, but these other races... I mean, their offices are incredibly important. They are really, really important. They do critical work every day. And I just worry they're not going to get a lot of attention without having people dedicate a lot of time and resources to thinking about how to get that attention. And so, same to Greg Bluesting, I'm running. You know, that should not be the the first and last time that race gets talked about, you know. But I, I worry for some of them it might be. You know, it's kind of ironic. I believe John Ossoff announced his Senate campaign on MSNBC, which is a worse version of telling Greg Bluestein you're running. I, I would agree. Um, and I'm sure that Greg Bluestein would love for everyone to continue to tell him that he's that they're running. 
for office. That would be genuinely um, hilarious <laughs> if everyone just told Greg Blues to. Look, he's writing the book on Georgia politics right now. He is the. That's true. Uh, he is. Um, he is becoming the authoritative voice of of everything Georgia politics. The other thing, though, I think. You know, obviously nothing precludes these candidates from reintroducing themselves, but I do think it's kind of a missed communications opportunity sometimes um, when you don't come out with sort of a thesis for your campaign at the start and use that hook of your announcement to sort of set the terms of the race and set the terms of why the person you are challenging um, should not get rehired for this job. Um, I think about that particularly on the labor commissioner candidates, because there has been a lot of difficulty for people navigating the bureaucracy of the labor department over the last um, year or so amidst this pandemic. There's a lot of reasons that candidates would have to run against the current labor commissioner, but to inform the public more broadly about why it's bad that people had a hard time claiming unemployment benefits during a pandemic, how many people got left behind by that process and what you would do differently as a way to fight for working people in our state. I think that is something that you should come out of the gates with clearly authoritatively and try to set the terms and cement in people's minds uh, why new leadership is needed in those positions. And I do think it's a little easier to do that when um, you know, you're not, uh, sort of further down the food chain from Stacey Abrams and, and Senator Warnock. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And the the thing that we should not leave unsec here is that someone that did exactly what I'm talking about this cycle was now, you know, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, uh, who had a excellent announcement video that I think did all the things that we're, we're hoping to see these other candidates do. And I, I'm sure you're right. They probably will reintroduce themselves in some way, but it was really exciting for me uh, as someone who, you know, loves the feeling of getting excited about people running to have the introduction uh, for Raphael Warnock running to, to be that excellent video that really, uh, you know, let me learn something about him because, you know, he's someone I followed for quite some time, but I didn't know everything that he talked about in that video. And so I, I, I just think that, uh, it really does serve a, a point um, larger than just like, oh, it's a flashy video. How great. Because it, it, when done right, it tells you why that person's running. And I think uh, Warnock did an excellent job of highlighting that and hitting on themes that he had on for the whole race. And, and so I think, you know, that kind of thinking is emblematic of uh, some greater preparation. I think that uh, I hope we see that caliber from all of our candidates this year. Well, candidates, you can make a slick introduction video you can announce your campaign on msnbc or you can spend a career in the senate and be the vice president before running for president all of those are paths to winning georgia but we like those videos for now we're going to leave that there we'll keep an eye on these campaigns as they develop and and you should start to hear from some of these candidates on peach pod here pretty soon in the short run we're probably going to take a little bit of a break it's been an exhausting 18 months of georgia politics um Gosh, it's been exhausting since 2018, to be honest. But we will be back soon uh, with more interviews, with more discussions, and following all the latest developments on redistricting as we sprint to 2022. Luke, thanks as always for joining the podcast. Happy to be here. All right, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.